Hi everyone, I'm Nadia Wusu, Director of Storytelling at Frontline Solutions, a Black-founded and led consulting firm dedicated to making the world more just for all. Um, Frontline is turning Sweet 16 this year, and we see this year as a coming of age or a rite of passage, so we're taking some time to celebrate, reflect, and look toward the future. Um, today, uh, the theme of this podcast is the future of philanthropy, and we do a lot of work with foundations supporting, for example, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, racial equity efforts, strategic planning, and program design. And we've learned a lot from that work, um, including, importantly, on issues like power and accountability. Um, and joining me for the discussion about what we've learned and what we hope the future of philanthropy might look like um, are Aiko Bathia, Jessica Barron, and Marion Johnson. And I'm going to invite each of them to introduce themselves. Um, so let's, uh, I'll turn it over to Aiko first. I'm Aiko Bathia, and um, at Frontlines, I serve as a senior director. And so I support a lot of the engagements that we're on. I also run Rare Coaching and Consulting, and I do a lot of writing as well. Thank you. Welcome, Aiko. Jessica? Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Jessica Barron. Uh, I'm a senior consultant at Frontline Solutions. I am also a trained sociologist and demographer. I love all things race, gender, and equity, uh, and also measurement in the census. If you want to get down with some numbers, hit me up. Um, but that's a lot of the work that I do at Frontline, a lot of our research and our DEI work. And I'll pass it over to Marion. Thanks, Jessica. Uh, my name is Marion Johnson. I'm a senior consultant at Frontline Solutions, and I'm also running for city council in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. Um, and so that's, yeah, a little bit about me. Yay. Thank you all. Um, and so let's jump right in. I wanted to kind of open up the discussion first with a, a little bit of conversation about the kind of work that we have done with philanthropy, what kinds of foundations we've worked with, what sorts of projects we are typically hired to do, and then maybe kind of what we think sets us apart from other consultants in this work. And, and maybe I'll start with you, Marian. Sure. Um, I think I have specifically mostly worked with smaller foundations and typically community foundations and community defined in terms of, you know, geography. And so they're place-based foundations or in terms of identity groups. And so they are foundations that are led by, run by, and primarily funding for queer and trans people of color, for example. Um, and the work that we do for them includes strategic planning, um, typically a two to three year timeline. Um, program evaluation and design, and sometimes explicitly diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And I think one thing that does set us apart from other consultants at this work is that equity is at the center of everything we do, regardless of whether we're putting together a strategic plan or coming in to do DEI work. And we don't really do one-off trainings. We mostly work with organizations who are ready to work with us for six to eight months and really commit to centering equity in every dimension of the work that they do, from grant making to leadership and governance to organizational culture. Like, we're not here just to spend a couple hours with you and then keep it moving. Like, we are really here for the organizations who are ready to do some long-term work. Thanks, Marianne. Aiko or Jessica, anything that you would like to add? I think some of the other foundations that we work with are also some of the large scale foundations. Um, so think about the Rockefellers, the Fords, the Robert Wood Johnson foundations. And like Marion said, I mean, a lot of those uh, engagements are for an extended period of time and they're typically um, repeat customers, if you will. And so we've been working with some of those foundations for years and years and years developing some of their work, which I think is a testament to how you know uh, deep and expansive equity work is within an organization. It's not just a one-time gig. It's something that is transformational and over time. And so those are some of the projects that I've worked on. Um, and we also do, and a lot of times are commissioned by some of these larger uh, institutions to do research projects um, with community, for community, um, to help understand and really advance and transform the way in which they are doing their work, thinking about their grant making, thinking about their own strategy and organizational structures. So that's another piece of the work that we do. Thanks, Jessica. So I probably uh, say when I think about who Frontlines is and the work that Frontline does uh, is that it's 
you know, black founded, black led, and the majority of people at Frontline are people of color. So I think going back to what Marion said in terms of equity being the center, it's also in people's lived experiences. And it's also something that's upfront and out front. So part of the approach to the work with Frontlines is that there's not um, a need or an expectation. As a matter of fact, there's expectation, I think, not to code switch, cover, and assimilate, but actually to hold a true mirror up to some of these organizations in terms of their culture and their values that may be by default. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. And um, given the culture of, of Frontline and sort of um, the previous podcasts have focused on our origin story and sort of the work that we kind of grew up doing. And so that makes a lot of sense that, you know, those values are the ones that we're bringing into our engagements with philanthropy as well. And, and I'm curious, you know, um, to talk more now about what we've learned from some of those engagements, um, including around sort of the readiness of philanthropy to do some of the work that you're all emphasizing in terms of really reckoning with issues of racial justice, um, really thinking about how they are serving or partnering or not with communities and um, some of that kind of self-reflection. So I'd love to hear, um, to transition into um, kind of some of what, what you all have learned and what you're thinking about in terms of the present of philanthropy and things that you would really like uh, people who work in philanthropy and particularly leaders in philanthropy to be thinking about and really truthfully examining. Yeah, I can start us off, I think, um, in being kind of on the research side of the firm, being able to take some deep dives into, um, for example, Black women's leadership and philanthropy over the last decade, or doing our work with First Nations, um, a Native-led uh, intermediary, and thinking about the ways in which they have experienced philanthropy uh, and the way in which they are approaching their work. It's so much about moving philanthropy away from this charity mindset, you know, charitable giving, and this is about charity and individual actors, to really understanding that philanthropy really should be a tool for um, you know, reparations essentially and dismantling systems of oppression, given that um, the philanthropic sector is highly unregulated in a lot of ways, it has the ability to move capital and to move resources and to really, really make some huge dents in these oppressive systems. And so really trying to transform uh, and talk to and really have this uh, larger reckoning for philanthropy at the hands of, you know, these Black women, these Indigenous folks who are, you know, honestly, like war generals, they are so tactical and so strategic in the way that they have had to be boots on the ground and strategists from the top um, to really mobilize and move philanthropy into its own truth. And the truth is philanthropy started as essentially like, you know, a safe haven for white wealth, like money laundering. And what does that mean? If that is the root, how are you reckoning with your own truth? And how are you reckoning with your own origin story? And then based on that reckoning, how are we reshaping the way in which we are navigating and moving as a sector to really um, liberate these different groups and different types of organizations that have really been disenfranchised simply by the way in which society has viewed these folks. And so I think that is a huge trend that we're seeing. And again, you know, this idea of this reckoning, a lot of times organizations come to us and, you know, they're trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? Like I heard, you know, philanthropy is really white. So what do I do about it? And it's like, it's not my job to tell you how to reckon with your own truth. It's like if you go to therapy and you expect your therapist to tell like to tell you everything what to do and then you know you move through your life like oh well my therapist said this and this you know go to them every week and ask them what to do. Really it's about us facilitating a place for organizations to come to that truth and to really use these skill sets and these different tools and techniques to move through that journey on their own. And so that's a part of the accountability um, that we're really seeing as well as, you know, organizations and foundations really trying to build out those accountability structures and us holding them account accountable to their own truth. And what does that mean in the way that you operate as an organization? Mm -hmm. yeah, I really like what you said, Jessica, just about the truth of philanthropy and where foundations come from. And I think that so many foundations think that because they are 
philanthropic organizations, that means that they are automatically non-oppressive and automatically anti-racist and automatically separate from you know all of the other systems and structures that we have in place. But the truth of the matter is that all of our systems and all of our structures and all of our organizations are founded in white supremacy, in capitalism, in the patriarchy. They're all founded in oppression in some way. And just because you're a foundation or a nonprofit or what have you, like doesn't mean that you're exempt from that unless you explicitly address that either in the creation of the foundation or as you are doing the work with us and realizing, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. We realize that we need to get better aligned with actual, you know, the values of equity. Um, and so many people, so many individuals and so many institutions are unwilling to really reckon with that because it's hard to hear, oh, I, I thought that I was doing something great, but it turns out that I'm actually, you know, reinforcing this harmful status quo. What we bump up against a lot is that reluctance to really reckon with the truth and reckon with organizations and individuals role in the status quo that has caused so much harm and continues to cause so much harm. And you know, some institutions are willing to do that reckoning and some institutions are really not. And yeah, it's it becomes pretty easy to tell the difference between those institutions as we are having conversations with them about the work that we want to do. I think the only thing I would pick up on is when you initially asked the question and you said, is philanthropy ready? And I think that philanthropy, it's not ever that it's not ready, but you have to make a choice of, are you going to do it? Or are you not going to do it? Are you going to move forward or not? Are you going to look in the mirror or not? Through whose eyes are you willing to look at yourself through or not? So it's never a question. Of, I, sometimes when we ask the question of, are people ready? It almost it sounds as if they have a choice or is on their timeline. So that's just another point of privilege to even think about, are you ready or not? It doesn't matter. It's a choice of, are you going to do or are you not going to do? Are you going to act? Are you going to hold yourself accountable? Are you going to learn new ways? Are you going to honor old ways from communities who were here first and who know better, who know better for them and are only accepting your funding because of what was taken from them and the extractive nature. So the idea of, are they ready? It's a matter of, I think the question is really, are they choosing to be ready and are they choosing to do or not to do? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and really resonates with me, Aiko. And actually, um, before coming to Frontline, I worked for a philanthropic collaborative of some of the largest foundations um, in the world. And one of the things that really struck me in kind of trying to do some racial equity organizing within those institutions was that how many of the people who worked in those institutions did not know where their foundation's money came from. The, the story of sort of where that wealth came from was not one that was commonly told within those institutions. And so even as a starting point of how do we understand sort of who we are as an institution and our origin story, like that discussion was not being had. And then the other thing related to what you just said, Aiko, and, and I'll transition to an, into another question from that, is, is this question of, of readiness and on whose timeline, um, and which I think sort of is very much entangled with um, with power, with ideas about power and accountability and authority and who gets to decide, um, which, you know, philanthropy, we can often think of as sort of this a very privileged group of people in a white tower sort of deciding who gets money and who doesn't and deciding whether or not they're going to do the work of self-interrogation. And often there are sort of um, ways that they avoid doing that work, for example, needing more data all the time um, to prove issues that are have been well proven or um, require or prioritizing the comfort of their white staffers, for example. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about these dynamics around power and accountability um, and what you've seen in the work that you've done in some of the, the kind of philanthropic um, organizations. I just want to go back to something about people not knowing where the money comes from. I do want to say, or speaking about where the money comes from, is that they will tell you straight up in, in the beginning where the money came from when it came from a business or their job or, you know, whatever, uh, Gates Foundation and where that money came from. But they don't talk about even what enabled people to be in that position to make that money. But they will tell you right off that, oh, this came from the family business when it's that sanitized. So I, I don't want to mix it up. It's a choice, not what you're going to say or not say and what you want to say that you know or don't. The other thing I just wanted to mention was uh, saying that there are these people in ivory towers who have money, money and privilege is that no, it's not. 
Now they, that may be the people who are in the C-suite or some, maybe for some family foundations, but the folks in there who are working every day, making decisions and feeling like they are powerful and perpetuating certain systems because I get to work here, work here. It's not coming at your bank account, but the way that the behavior of the power in terms of how it's so insidious and people feel that now I'm in here, I'm going to perpetuate those business, the, the same mindset with these grantees and these communities. And uh, it happens within the walls of those places in terms of how they treat one another, even in terms of who's a, who's a program officer versus who's in operations. We get to be the ones in front to say who gets the money, who doesn't, and you're the paper pusher. So I do wanna say that the same um, inequity and the same systems are perpetuating inside those walls too, not just upon the grantees and the communities. So it's a really sick cycle um, and it happens in, in terms of when people are protecting this wealth that's not even theirs and that's even harming them. So I just it's just that paradox there that just has to be, I think, named as well. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree with that. I think often um, the foundations, or at least in my experience, are less willing to look internally at sort of how they are perpetuating systems of oppression internally. And often it is the people of color um, who are organizing for change within those institutions as well. Um, and and so what, what would you, any of you sort of add around sort of um, the willingness to kind of look internally at operations at sort of power dynamics within the institutions. Yeah, I think what Iko said is very real. The fact that we have a number of prospective clients or clients who say, oh, we don't need to worry about organizational culture. We already have a mission statement or something like that, or we have an HR department. We really want to think about, you know, our impact externally and that unwillingness to be reflective about your internal dynamics is a, you know, it's a red flag for us. I think people think that equity is something that you can really compartmentalize and say, oh, well, we are just focused on our community impact or we're just focused on, you know, our communication style or something like that. Like if we have our communication guidelines down, then we won't be oppressive anymore in any way, as opposed to really thinking about, you know, internal leadership and how that shows up, who is actually leading, who's making decisions, who's listened to inside the organization. Um, do we have a culture of defensiveness where, to Iko's point, you know, if something is brought up, then the institution or even just individuals will reject it completely and say, no, we don't, you know, criticisms aren't acceptable here. You must not be down for the cause. You must not be really aligned with the values of our organization. You're the problem. Um, or do you have a culture of transparency and a culture of vulnerability, frankly, where you're able to take in criticism to really think through like how can I as an individual show up best for my teammates for my organization for the community that we're supposed to be accountable to um, and how can I how can I try to dismantle oppressive structures within the organization and without the organization um, so there's it's critical that we think of equity as being multi-directional that it can't just be outward facing and it can't just be inward facing all of it is interrelated and you know, if we want to talk about red flags, you know, there's a lot of a lot of ones <laughs> that are waved around. <laughs> you know, I think both Iko and Marion touched on it that that inability to see that there is internal work to do. Just you know, especially with these larger foundations, to kind of purport, you know, we're supporting our grantees and their DEI efforts, and you have a culture that is just the most punitive and people feel small and they have to hide and it's scarcity mentality. You know, the adaptation of, uh, you know, white supremacy culture, it, it, it has evolved, right? And it looks different in different ways and you can be a quote unquote, you know, charitable foundation uh, and, and still purport and perpetuate these systems that you are saying that you are helping to undo with your grant making, right? And so I think thinking about, you know, it's not this checklist, like, oh, we have all these things in place, therefore, you know, we're an equitable organization. But if there is that willingness for transformation versus just a transactional, you know, uh, activity when people hire us, I think that is when we can see that there's some fertile ground for change. But if it is truly transactional and they're just trying to get, you know, this done, this done, and this done, um, i.e. we're just trying to get, you know, more equitable grant making, as uh, Marion said, you know, have the communications, you know, 
few words and this, that, and the other, but we're not thinking about equitable impacts both internally and externally. I think that, you know, it just morphs into the DEI, but it's just the D, right? It's just diversity. Do we have like some brown people sprinkled in? Mm-hmm. When we say inclusion, we just have everybody at the table, but ain't nobody able to make no kind of decisions except for the one person who's not in the room anyway and doesn't care what y'all said, you know, and the equity piece is really you know, quote unquote, level playing field for everyone, knowing that everyone isn't even coming to the starting line at the same place, right? So it's just this kind of one size fits all, see we're equitable and that's not the case. Um, So I, you know, I think when we think about red flags, it's not just, you know, oh, there's a really toxic culture. There's like one person who's bad, but it's it's the structure in which your organization is set up. How does that look? And are we able to really see some transformation or is it just gatekeeping at all ends? I also think too, when it comes to the grant making piece, it's super fascinating that people are so, um, you know, punitive and they're so finite uh, and so um, controlling of 5% of the funds when 95% of your house is doing something completely different. And so this push towards mission aligned investing, I think is really fascinating and really, you know, asking, interrogating that money question again, like, where's the money coming from? So y'all say you want equity, but you're funding private prisons. Y'all say you want equity, but the environmental stuff that you're doing is wild, you know? So it's like, what what's really going on and why does it have to be the 95% and the 5%? Why can't we rearrange and think about this in a different way? Why can't we transform? I know there's a tax code and you know people trying to save money, but again, it comes down to money. And I think that needs to be a conversation that needs to be had. Like you care so much about this 5% knowing that if you, you know, make every single grantee fill out this long report and it's so invasive and all kinds of stuff. And yet if every single grant that you made completely tanks, the entire ship will still be fine because 95% of their investments are tied up somewhere else. So let's think about that. Why are you asking and requiring so much from your grantees when really that won't sink your ship? What's gonna sink your ship is what we should be focusing on and how is that transforming the communities in which you are purporting to serve? And can we talk to you about that transactional thing that we often get from prospective clients, specifically the ones who want to check a box and say, oh, we did our DEI thing. It becomes particularly insidious when you think about who Frontline is, particularly like we think about who Frontline is, the fact that we are an openly Black-led like POC majority firm, that oftentimes these organizations want this cool Black-owned firm to give them a pass and let them feel good about themselves and the impact that they're already having and not do any real work. And when we get that vibe, it's a no just right away. Like we can't work with somebody who's trying to sort of use our cultural cachet in order to avoid doing any real work. That is a huge red flag. And another one I would say is when we're, if we're told explicitly or we just intuit um, that leadership is not on board with having direct conversations about diversity, about equity, about inclusion. Um, We've been told before things like, our CEO won't sign off on this if you're gonna talk about racism or white supremacy. Like we've been told if you use the word racism in conversations like this, somebody's gonna walk out of the room. And I'm just like, if we can't talk about two things that are literally foundational to like all of our systems and structures, like, what are we going to talk about, Janet? Like, what do you want us to do exactly? Like, it's just, yeah. So that's another red flag where if we have to make the case to the people who are trying to hire us about why the work is actually important, the work's not going to really get done if we engage with you. And I think too, to Marion's point, when we have a DEI committee or like a DEI person who's either self-appointed or folks have kind of Um, convene themselves. Sometimes that is a red flag in that they don't have the support of their leadership. So they're trying to make changes, but they don't have the ability and the autonomy to make those those structural changes that are needed. And while we don't want to completely like shit on DEI committees or anything like that, understanding the power dynamics and sometimes the optics of, oh, we have a committee, but they can't really do nothing like that. That's huge for us, you know, for us to kind of stint that out and to see. So we're asking, who do you report to and what are the, who can make these decisions and those kinds of things um, is, is really important. And I, I think, you know, folks 
either self-appoint or they're doing additional work that isn't seen, you know, or valued in the performance reviews or what have you. But then externally, it's like, oh, you know, Nadia does all, all of our, you know, DEI work and yet Nadia doesn't get any promotions, any raises, any, you know, reprieve from her normal workload for all the things that she's already doing. And that's a problem. That's an equity issue. Well, Jessica, since you since you used my name in, in that example, I'll, I'll jump on that because I actually was in the position of being sort of the director of communications, but because I was sort of a black person organizing within a philanthropic organization around issues of um, diversity, equity and inclusion and really racial equity and inclusion. Um, but, you know, the diversity part was more emphasized by the leadership, but but I ended up sort of as a de facto chief diversity officer um in addition mm -hmm. to my full-time job and mm -hmm. and i was authorized you know i was on the leadership team and i was charged by hires up to facilitate workplace conversations about topics like white privilege unconscious bias intersectionality all of those things but when i tried to do those things i was told to kind of tone down the incendiary language mm -hmm. um i was called of a course zealot in one meeting somebody called me a race zealot um and what? particularly when i tried to bring up issues of anti-blackness and how anti-blackness showed up in our culture which was a problem that you know as as sort of somebody who was charged with leading this work my colleagues frequently raised with me um that was just completely denied that anti-black racism could even mm. exist and that it was divisive to bring up black people in particular um, so uh, given that experience i'd love to hear from you all too about your experience of working with people who might have been in positions similar to mine like who were on those committees or who were charged with leading that kind of work internally but found that actually the organizations didn't want them to really do their jobs the jobs that they had been hired to do mm. <laughs> i have to say nadia like i have had similar experiences to that and it's something like it never leaves you you know like when you've been called the problem when you're trying to get an organization like you're doing free labor right trying to get an organization to align with the values that they purport to align with they have like justice in the title of their name, but they don't want to talk about racial justice because, you know, they just want to talk about economic justice. And those two things are completely separate to them. Mm -hmm. um, to be labeled as the problem is just such a, I mean, it is gaslighting and it is, um, it is in and of itself a racial aggression. Like it is them using their right to comfort as white people, as a weapon against you, as the person who's you know, been used like, oh, you were hired. Like we, we love hiring black people. We don't like listening to them, but we like hiring them. And that's yeah, something that, that I've part. had in, yeah, like. <laughs> that part, exactly. We I mean, I just. We don't want to listen yeah, to you. Exactly. Like I just, I just saw Candyman the other day and you know, there's this line, they love what we create, but they don't love us. And just like being able to separate our humanity from our labor is just such an insidious part of white supremacy. And it's something that, yeah, has shown up in almost all of my previous jobs. And it also shows up in the work that we do with clients. And I think, honestly, I'm going to put Iko on the spot a little bit because Iko wrote a fantastically titled article. The article itself is also fantastic, but the title, Working with Black Equity Consultants 101 or maybe this is AP level for some is just like exquisite <laughs> shade <laughs> but it is like it is something that we have to deal with as you know predominantly people of color this organization who are hired by predominantly white led organizations and how they see us as consultants how they see the work that we do and um yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna force Aiko to talk about her writing a little bit because she has like literally written about this yeah Aiko please I had to like breathe over here, y'all, <laughs> especially Nadia, as you're telling your stories, like we're all uh, triggered hearing it over again. I will say that one thing, you know, I'm really clear about is that with clients that I have, I will not do any work with them. If the people I'm working with are all people of color, mm -hmm. if anybody on there is not getting paid to do it in addition to their job or something's taken off of their plate, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I have to have that in part of the agreement that they're telling me that because I'm not going to be up in there perpetuating inequity as well. So I just want to be clear about that. The other part is um, what um, Marion said earlier to you about people wanting to cache in on um, frontlines, frontline solutions, uh, reputation and what have you to say, hey, we did work with this, the black, the black firm and the black people told us blah, blah, not that you're going to do it all. 
but feeling like that's kind of your card carrying way of now being legit. And now everyone being able to use all the right words and right language, but not being able to shift their mindset, their belief system or their culture is so telling. I know what these, I'm not even afraid to say white supremacy and I'm a white person, so watch me. I'm talking about white supremacy and racism, but then turning right around the corner and doing some really just foul stuff. So it's it morphs. I think it was Jessica who's talking about it morphs, it changes. I mean, it finds ways to still be um, in alignment with whatever's happening, doesn't matter the language you're using. But going back to Marion's point about even us showing up as Black equity consultants or people of color, let's just say we're not white adjacent at all. Our job is to come in and help you become what you're hopefully already envisioning to be, right? And to become and to walk in it. But when we show up and get there and everybody's deer in the headlights and they want you to teach them one-on-one, it's that that's not, that's not in the contract. You know, we're, as a matter of fact, you're probably not even going to be able to walk too far along this if you haven't really had the understanding of the why. Because to bring in a bunch of people of color to explain to you why this work is important is just an outright insult. You know, me telling you why my humanity is important and worse so when you're a philanthropic organization and you're going into communities and you can't figure out yourself why it's important for you to figure out how to show up is just ridiculous. But even as Black folks, when we're showing up or people of color, one of the things that Jess, I think, mentioned already was the idea of explaining how you got your data over and over again, every which way past Sunday versus recognizing this, which, this is what your people said. We didn't make this up. And that's why the qualitative data is so important. But the, you will get grilled every way past Sunday. And I've never seen this be done with Deloitte, McKinsey or BCG or anything but asking us what tools we use and then having the nerve to also ask us who we spoke to. Doesn't matter, is somebody on your payroll and this is what they think. Wanting the, us to tell them who do we interview as well, why, so you can be punitive towards them. So this idea of wanting to grill us so that we have to continue to self-validate our presence and our expertise, despite our lived experiences, you're talking about even the credentials of people, everyone on staff at Frontlines is just, you know, above the mark right so the, the nerve of you to even ask and what makes you qualified so it's this it's this idea of when we come in no matter what even with people inviting us in that we are put in a position to have to show up at a deficit even though there's nothing about our qualifications or who we are that has given them any right to ever question what we're doing we're here because you have an issue and you want us to actually become the issue because we didn't do this right because of this, that, or the other. So it really, it really is some shit when you're coming in and people have invited you to come in to support them in this work about um, equity, but they want you to be identified as the problem or unskilled or unworthy to be within their walls, to you know be there. Um, all of these things, we had somebody actually quote the price of our contract to us and say, we've spent this much money I knew I'm coming here. So what we expected was A, B, or C. And I'm thinking to myself, I actually charged double this. You had right. a you had that's a that's it exactly. You got, a full report. <laughs> you got are you are you tripping? And then your organization's worth, you know, billions. So this is the type of thing that we hear. And one of the things that is an outlier about frontline that I I really appreciate is that when we're talking to our CEO or the founders. They're not making us have to lay down. We don't have to worry about trying to retain this client. If you're at some other firms, it's like you have to save the relationship, even though these people are totally shitting on you and perpetuating the very thing that they want you to come in to fix. But we, you know, with to have founders and folks who have walked the same lived experience and that they know what they want for our, their community and for the community of Frontline, we don't have to stay in there and try to save something. You don't need us be there and put our dignity on the ground. I don't think any of us would anyway, but to know that we can go and say, you know what, you know, there's some, there's some, uh, a lot of fish to fry here and these people aren't ready nor, and they don't want to. And as a matter of fact, they want to create this perverse relationship between us where they want to perpetuate things. And so that's, that's one of the things I really appreciate with working at Frontline is that we don't have to set our humanity aside. We can hold an organization accountable by walking and they can share with their organization why Frontline left mm -hmm. and didn't want to be here. No, it's it's always so 
I think it's the harshest lash out when they throw the price tag in our face and say, you know, for this amount of money, we deserve to be getting X, Y, Z. And it almost always comes from people who need the most work and who we've given actually more than we have contracted to give. Um, but they'll always be like, it. it is harmful just from, a, you know, perpetuating a harmful status quo perspective. It's also just personally hurtful that we, not only are we, experts in what we're doing. Not only do we have that expertise based on, you know, the work that we've done, the degrees that we have, the lived experience that we have. It's also just hurtful from a personal, like, we've put in a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of effort. It's really easy. And it happens to us all the time to get very emotionally invested in the work that we're doing. Um, because we are passionate about this work. And because we're often working with organizations who are doing really exciting work. Um, and so we get very invested in it. So to have them lash out when we've told them something that they don't want to hear and to start questioning our data, to start asking, you know, start nitpicking everything that we said, to question our analysis um, and to question our commitment to the work, to question, you know, we've paid for you to be here. So why aren't you doing what I want you to do? It just it does actually hurt my feelings that like I work a lot with my therapist on depersonalizing that sort of reaction because I could be literally any black woman that's telling them this. It does not, like who I am does not matter. What I am, what I'm saying is what's hurting them. Um, but it does still, you know, you put, you invest a lot of time and energy into something and we're giving people our best work and to have them lash out like that and to realize very quickly like, oh, my humanity was never actually that important to you. What you wanted was like comfort from me. You wanted reassurance from me. And that was all I was gonna serve for you. Like that, that does, I mean, it hurts. They wanted you to be Mamie. Come mm -hmm. in here, Mammy. Make me feel better. Mm -hmm. Not tell me the truth. Not tell me what's really there. But absolutely. which is honestly hilarious, considering like the three of us in particular. Like we've never been people who tell people stuff just to make them feel better. Like we're always <laughs> going to be honest. Like that's who we're. That's who we're hired to be, and that's also just our personality type. Like we're always going to be honest, and that is honesty that comes from care, and that comes from commitment to our values, and that comes from you know a love for our work, and it's. Yeah, you're not going to get somebody who's just going to say things like, oh, y'all are already doing amazing, sweetie. Like, that's just not who you're hiring when you hire Frontline. And they'll actually say, you didn't even you didn't even mention in this report all the good things we're doing. We'll even say that. <laughs> and, and Girl, yeah, you better. never told us all the good things, nor did anybody in the surveys, the interviews or any other data collection process we took. No one told us about the good things. They can't be that great, you know, and <laughs> they're not that memorable. And also, I just think, you know, there's, as we've been talking, I think about, you know, having been now at Frontline for, I think, five years around almost there, but, you know, just how we have evolved in even our approach to the work that we do. Um, you know, ICO has really pushed us to really, you know, talk to people about what does it mean to work with a Black consulting firm? You know, what does that mean? What are you willing to put on and off the table? You know, and, and have you worked with folks of color? Have you taken direction from a black woman before? Like those are the kinds of questions when people ask, oh, do you have any questions for us? It's like, actually, yes, here are all of them. Because white rage and white fragility go hand in hand when we are giving these reports back to folks. And we're never the diversity police. We're not the gotcha moment. We're not looking for any of that underhanded stuff. But because many of these folks have never had a person of color tell them about themselves and have never let anybody of color in a position to have that kind of authority to speak about you know, what their organization is doing and not doing and not personalize it, right? We tell them this isn't about an individual. This is about the structure of your organization. And you have someone, you know, I have a PhD. Ico has, you know, the mile long CV. So does Marion. It's like, again, as, as we said, the, the types of experiences or expertise that folks are getting when they hire our team only to throw that back at us with then insults and the type of rage and wrath that we get and the disrespect we get constantly. Sometimes people have been so disrespectful that we've actually used those emails as training and we internally have had to go through um, you know, racial battle fatigue training just because of the nature of the work and how aggressive white folks can get with us um, about the thing. And again, we're telling them things like, you know, you should have like parental leave instead of maternity leave. You know, we're not, give, we're not telling them like the world is flat. Like we're giving them 
these really tactical things that could help them transform the organizations. And we're also just naming things, right? I think we're not afraid of confrontation. Confrontation's not a four letter word, nor are we doing it to make someone cry. We are doing it because of the care. As you know, Marion said, that idea from Brene Brown, clear as kind, we're trying to be as kind as we can, so we're being as clear as we can. Uh, and, and folks just take that uh, and have been really, really disrespectful. So I am grateful to work at a place like Frontline because that disrespect isn't unique just to the work that we do. Folks of color experience and, and different folks and different marginalized identities experience that disrespect on a daily basis and many times are taught to swallow it, that they're not good enough to play small, to try to adapt. And here it's like live as big and as bold as you can because we respect the expertise and all the training that you have gone through to get to this point. So we know if something is awry, it is not because you have mismanaged the situation or there's an honesty to have that conversation if we have. However, nine times out of 10, it's really understanding how white supremacy is at work in these organizations and how that then is shaping the way in which these folks are operating and addressing us. Mm -hmm. I, I do wanna say that um, I don't want to make an assumption here. So I do want to say that the behaviors we see about um, folks basically wanting to exercise power over basically everyone, including us, including their grantees and others, um, that it doesn't only come in the color of white skin. There's also folks where, you know, you, they, you know, the proximity to power or whiteness and money comes mm, tell up. Tell the truth, tell the truth, I know. I do want to be, be clear that it comes um, in a lot of, you know, that power and that proximity to whiteness can be very intoxicating. And so it can just, um, you know, baffle one when you're in the room and the person who is the most combative, you know that they're also the one who is being um, diminished in many ways also. So I do want to be clear about that. There's a price that's being paid by everyone. That's so real. Like oppression needs foot soldiers. Like the patriarchy needs women to also reinforce the patriarchy. White supremacy needs non-white people to reinforce white supremacy. It can't just, if it were just white people who were doing it or just men who were, you know, enacting harm just based on the patriarchy, then it wouldn't last. Like it would, it's, people who have that proximity to power, like Igo said, they tend to reinforce that structure and they tend to be the most defensive of it because they're the ones who are more likely to lose something if the status quo gets dismantled. They're like, oh, I spent my whole life adhering to this status quo. This is how I know that I'm safe. If y'all start tearing it down, then what does that mean for me? Like that means that everything that I've been supporting and everything that I've been reinforcing has not saved me. Like that means that I'm actually more vulnerable and it's, yeah, that is heartbreaking to see when it's somebody who you're like, oh, this might this person might be an ally in this work because I know that they are, you know, they're bearing the brunt of all of this stuff in the, within the organization, and then they're the ones who are questioning you the loudest and who are poking the most holes in what you're doing and who are trying to dis trying to just sort of like dissociate themselves from you and say like I'm not one of them. Don't get it twisted. Like I'm I'm with y'all. I'm I'm with this organization. I align myself with this amount of power. Well, and some of that questioning too, sort of the the demand for you know tell us show us your work you know or the demand for more definitions or more case making and no matter how much you give is never going to actually be enough, like that's one of the the sort of red flags and you spoke to some of the other red flags and Ico in particular sort of named for example like not working with um, not wanting to work with institutions who are just going to like give her their diversity committee to work with who have no power or authority to do anything. What are some other things that you um, are seeing in terms of um, red, not necessarily red flags, but like things that you would really demand that these institutions do before being willing to do work with them and not in a checklist kind of way, because I know that there are some philanthropic leaders who will listen to this and say, okay, we're going to make a list and we're going to check the boxes. But but are there are there kind of things that you look for that that signal to you that it might be worth your time and energy and expertise to work with these institutions? I think that one of the things I'm also say, often saying to clients, um, um, this is specifically talking about white folks, is you have to be willing to own your identity as the villain in the story. 
Um, you know, all of us, we're coming into every room as the villain at a deficit, totally unearned. I go into, you know, the store and I'm going to be the thief. I go into the PTA and I'm going to be the loud mother, totally unearned, but just by virtue of the body I'm in and walking in. But when we look at even history period, and you think about it, but yet white folks aren't willing to think about the possibility or imagine themselves as the villain. You have to be willing to see yourself as a villain in other people's story. If even just by the virtue of history, it's not about whether or not your family were slave owners or owners of enslaved people. It's the fact that you're still also benefiting from these systems intentionally or not. But when you get it, if I know that I'm working with people and they're willing to um, from the get-go, recognize I'm the villain in a lot of other people's story, and I understand why. Now, what can I do? Because there's a willingness to be able to look back in history, look at current state, and to own and understand why this dynamic exists and to figure out part of this is my accountability to rectify this versus saying, well, it, it wasn't me and I wasn't the one, or how can I be an ally? No. How do you fix the fact that you are the villain in this story? And what are you going to do and take ownership of to move forward? So now we're not talking about folks just sitting up in the room saying, I know that I have privilege or I want to be an ally. No, I recognize I'm the villain in this story. And what do we do to actually change and create a new story and a new ending for other people? Not for me, so I can feel good, but for other people that is the right ending of the story. That is the right new narrative. You come, with, come to me with that, we can work with that. But instead, that's not what we're getting all the time. But. I love that. I feel that's definitely not something anyone can check off a list. Um, <laughs> it goes much deeper than that. Jessica or Marion, and we're running low on time, but I'd love to hear um, both of you sort of respond to that as we come to a close. Yeah, I really love um, the idea that, you know, you can be the villain in a story right now or historically, but the story is not over. Like us saying that you're the villain in this story doesn't mean that the book is closed and that's that's a wrap that we're completely writing you off. We're not making value judgments about, you know, who you are as a person, the fact that you have some sort of, like we all have privileges in some contexts and we all lack privileges in others. And I think, yeah, letting yourself be comfortable with that and letting yourself know that, okay, at the end of the day, I still have time to change who I am in this story. I still have time to commit myself to, you know, not even just being an ally, but being a comrade, being um, letting myself be maybe the sidekick in a story and not having to be the hero, I think is really important. I think that level of humility, that level of introspection um, and that level of, yeah, reflection, I think is really important. And I think it's something that we can pick up on in conversation, like the way that leaders in particular answer questions that we ask them about, you know, what is your organizational culture like right now? What is the decision-making process? Um, what happens when you typically need to make some sort of organizational transformation? What does that process look like? And if they are transparent with us about it and they're not defensive and trying to put their best face forward, but they're really honest about who they are, that's a, I don't think there are green flags in this. I don't know what even, what sports reference red flags are from, but <laughs> that is a green light, I guess. Um, knowing that there is a willingness to be vulnerable, to be open with us and to really to really commit to the work. That's, that's something that always gives me, that always makes me excited about working with someone. And I think, yeah, I think of like, um, you know, that, I remember one time uh, one client said, I didn't know this was going to be so invasive. I thought you were just going to like do some HR stuff and then that was it. And so I think folks having an expansive understanding that, you know, this is going to reach every facet of your organization. Um, you know, we use our tool and our framework, the equity footprint to do that. But I also, it's, a, it's this thing of understanding that like equity isn't just a moment and it's not just relegated to a department, but it is truly a way to conduct and do business. It is the way to organize ourselves. It is the way to think and to frame our work. So it truly is quote unquote invasive and expansive. And I think when folks have if, even if they don't know what that looks like, but they have that understanding that, you know, I want you to talk to our investments committee. I want you to talk to our IT folks. I, you know, when folks start, it's not just the DEI committee. It's not just the grant making. It's not just, you know, the poor HR person who got kind of thrown into this and has no idea. Um, but it is 
it is that kind of expansive reach and that understanding, I think, is something that tips me off to, you know, this might be a place where, you know, transformation can happen. I think, too, like it in writing the report on Black women's leadership in philanthropy, um, there's this idea of becoming like Black lady compliant, meaning like having your organization ready to have a Black leader and to have a leader that is unlike the leadership before. And what does that mean to have, you know, an Indigenous-led organization, a Black-led organization, and not just a Black person at, you know, at a certain position, but having that leadership style, that leadership uh, ambition, that leadership strategy completely coat the entire organization. And for me, thinking about um, kind of where is philanthropy going, I think in part we have to look back and think about, you know, philanthropy isn't always been white, you know, the way in Black, the way in which Black folks give and have given and have held up their communities, the way in which Indigenous folks, the way in which, you know, name the community queer folks. We have as marginalized people in this country have given and thought about giving and thought about community and thought about power in a very different way. And so we have to readjust our understanding of what it means to be a philanthropic leader, what it means to be a philanthropic organization, what it means to give. Um, and I think then we will really see a more expansive and um, just an overall better, for lack of a better word, just a better way to conduct ourselves as a sector and to really see some, some deep dismantling of systems of oppression. When you ask the folks who have always been put on the margins, how have they been conducting themselves? Because with the lack of resources, with the lack of respect, with the lack of humanity, we still are here, we are still sustaining ourselves and we are still driving you know, to liberate our own communities. And that those are the strategies that we need. That, that's what we need in order to you know, push forward as a, as a sector. And that's the kind of transformation I see. Jessica, what a beautiful and powerful place to land this conversation about um, the future of philanthropy. Um, I will say that it is such a joy and an honor. I'm relatively new to Frontline, but just the brilliance um, in this space is amazing. And it's a joy and an honor to work with all three of you and to learn from all three of you. And, and so thank you so much for, for being willing to share your wisdom with our podcast listeners. And um, thank you to all of the people tuning in. And we hope you'll keep listening to our Sweet 16 podcast. Thank you.